Now come back to the hope. Verse 14. However, in the future I will allure her. Now remember, there are several things that makes Yahweh unique from all other gods. One of the things that makes Yahweh absolutely unique from any other being in the entire universe is that he is the only God that is absolutely sovereign and loving at the same time. Most beings are not both. And even if they are one, they're not doing it well enough. Nobody's absolutely sovereign and nobody's really absolutely loving. Yahweh's the only one. But the other thing that, absolutely, that makes him absolutely unique is he's the only being in the universe that pursues you. And I don't mean like pursues you, because lots of people have pursued, but pursues you into the deepest depths of anything. That when you are at your most hateful, shaking your fist at God and saying, I don't want anything to do with you, he was dying on the cross for you. When you were totally in the bottom of your bottle, or in your addiction with all your lovers, or whatever it is, he was pursuing you and sending people in your life to call you back out. In all your sins, and all of your running away from God, He's the only God who pursues you no matter what. We give up on people all the time. We pursue people, but there's a limit. There's a limit of how much we'll pursue them, and how much crap we'll take from them, and how much we'll let them destroy us emotionally, or physically, or mentally. But God, there's no end. He lets you destroy Him so completely that the internal living God died, that a member of the Trinity was separated from the other members of the Trinity, that he died the most excruciating physical death that you could ever men, that he allowed his own children to kill him. He pursued you to the point that he let you do everything to him, and he still died for you. And that's what God is saying. I will lure you. I will pursue you. I will bring you back, and no other being will do that. No other being will do that. Do not just read the harsh language and forget why it's there and then not read the love and the relationship and the desire for repentance and restoration. And I will do anything to change your heart and get you back again. Don't miss that. Nobody likes it when people take a snapshot of our life and say that's who we are. Don't do it to God. Don't do it to God. And encourage those people in your life who do that to not do it. Any, I mean, not don't do that, but in your witness and your testimony, help them see the bigger picture. I will lead her back into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. He's not saying, now at first you might think, why would he lead her back into the wilderness? Okay, that's not like, what he means is the wilderness after Egypt. Like when I first met you, the wilderness was not supposed to be a horrible place. The wilderness was, I just brought you out of the horrible place of Egypt where you were abused and enslaved. But when I brought you into a wilderness, I brought you to a land that was barren. But I miraculously provided for you in the midst of the barrenness so that it would be obvious to you that it was me wooing you. That would be the equivalent of you saying, my spouse, when we first met each other, took me on a date. And then the location, the environment was horrible and crappy. And everything was going wrong. But yet it was really amazing. And I had so much fun because of what they turned it into. 
like when life gives you lemons, turn into lemonade. Okay? That kind of an idea. And that's what God is saying. I will take you back to the wilderness. When, when nothing there did anything for you, yet you had everything because I was with you. That's what makes this so romantic, staying with the, the metaphor. I will give her back her vineyards and turn the valley of trouble into an opportunity for hope. There she will sing as she did when she was young, when she came up from the land of Egypt. At that time, declares Yahweh, you will call my husband. You will never again call me my master. Now the word Baal literally means master. And so what God is saying is you will never have to serve a God that is my master. You will never call me Baal master. You will never confuse us. Something will change and you will see me as a husband. You will see me as intimate, relational with you. I'm going to change our relationship where it will no longer be about obedience in the Mosaic Covenant. It will be about a relationship. Now, in hindsight, we know that's the cross and the Holy Spirit. Because no longer do we have a law that we have to obey. Now we have a relationship with the Spirit in us who gives us a more intimate relationship with God. I remove the names of the Baal idols from your lips so you will never again utter their names. This is the language where God begins to describe, I'm going to change you. I'm going to change you. And I'm going to change our relationship. At that time, I will make a covenant for them. And with the wild animals, the birds of the air, and the creatures that crawl on the ground, I will abolish the warrior's bow and the sword. That is every weapon of warfare from the land. So God says, a time is coming when I will make a new covenant. Now, he doesn't use the word new here. He just says covenant. But Jeremiah 31, 31 will use the word new. So this is the new layer. A new covenant is coming. And I will allow them to live securely. I will commit myself to you forever. And I will commit myself to you in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and tender compassion. I will commit myself to you in faithfulness. Then you will acknowledge Yahweh. There's going to be something more intimate about this covenant relationship in the future that you don't have right now. Right now I'm a master, but in a day I will be a husband. And that's what he's promising. The cross will bring a more intimate covenant that will change us. Chapter verse 21. At that time I will willingly respond, declares Yahweh. I'll respond to the sky, and the sky will respond to the ground, and the ground will respond to grain, and the new wine, and the olive oil, and they will all respond to God's plants. Jezreel, abundance, garden. Then I will plant her as my own in the land. I will have pity on no pity. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he will say, you are my God. Notice the reciprocal nature of this. It's two ways. See, in Amos, he just said, I will bring you back to the land and restore the land. And Hosea is saying, I'll bring you back to the land and restore the land, and you will reciprocate. You'll reciprocate back to me. This will be a two-way relationship. Right now, I'm the only one who's been faithful. I'm the only one who's really been taken care of. But in response to God, now knows too, the global nature. It's not just with them, it's with creation. And there's Noahic covenant language here. Words for all of creation, not just for a people. The wording at the end of this chapter is almost exactly the same as the previous chapter. 
Yes. Lots of repetition. By doing that, God is repeating things so we get that message. It's kind of like being a teacher. There's so many times I have to repeat things over and over again. And a lot of times my students are like, oh, that's so cool. And I'm like, yeah, I've been saying that like five times for last week. So we need to hear it again. And two, by reinforcing that, he's, he's looping back. He's looping back in these themes because remember when Joseph said, the fact that God gave you Pharaoh this dream twice means it's definitely going to happen. So the repetition is one communicating the fact I want you to not miss this. Because remember for them, they were listening. This is a collection of speeches. So they didn't have this written down. So they had to hear it. And so if we couldn't record the president speaking, we might miss a lot of things he says. So he has to say it again and again and again. But we live in a day and age where we could record things and go back and re-listen to it and then take them out of context too. But, so, but for them, they're hearing this. So they need to hear it again and again because they might have missed it. The other thing, by repeating it over and over again, he's making sure that they understand this is definitely going to happen. This is definitely going to happen. Chapter 3, verse 1. Yahweh said to me, Go, show love to your wife again, even though she loves another man and continually commits adultery. Likewise, Yahweh loves Israel, although they turn to the other gods and love to offer raisin cakes to the idols. Here you see the pursuit. Your wife has left you. She's with another man. But I want you to pursue her and bring her back just like Yahweh does with Israel. So I paid 15 shekels of silver and about seven bushels of barley to purchase her. Then I told her, you must live with me many days. You must not commit adultery or have sexual intercourse with another man. And I also will wait for you. Now this is powerful. He had to pay for her. She has sold herself into idolatry and she is owned by pimps, so to speak. And you just can't go and take her back. You have to pay for her. The implication is some kind of divorce has happened here. The only way that he would have to pay for her is if she has legally separated herself from him. If he is married to her, he doesn't have to pay anything. His marriage covenant trumps any debt or any hold that a pimp has in a court of law. And he can go in and take her back. And if the pimp says, you owe me, he can go to the court and say, she's my wife. And no court will rule in that case. But if she has legally separated herself with some kind of contract, and then now they own her, then he has to pay for her back. So this isn't just a husband who's taking a woman back that has committed affairs. This is a woman who sold herself to a pimp and is selling her body off to all of her lovers and owes a debt and belongs to them. And now not only does he have to take this woman back and be with her and love her, which would be emotionally and mentally difficult there, but he also has to pay to legally get her back to the worst of the worst pimps of all people. Which means there has been a divorce, but God doesn't accept the divorce as a long-term solution. He's brought her back. And he's saying, thus is Israel to me. The most ultimate thing is that we are now told in the Second Testament that our pimp is the devil, is sin, and the world. And Christ died and paid his life to buy us back. This is why death has no more sting. This is why Romans 6 says you were enslaved to sin and death. And you had no choice but to sin, because you were enslaved and belonged to them. 
But then Romans 8 says, thank God we have been redeemed for the Holy Spirit and there's no condemnation. And now we're free. And now we actually have the ability to actually not sin now because we belong to him. Because he paid the price to free us from that. He freed us from our slavery. And so that's what God is painting an image here is that this is what Christ has done. He paid to get us back from the people we had prostituted ourselves to. The sin, the lust, all that kind of stuff. And then he says, I will wait for you. It doesn't matter how many times you go back into prostitution, how many times you resell yourself back into that. It doesn't matter how long you're gone. I will wait for you to come back. That's love. No matter how many sins you're willing to excuse, that's one that most people in our culture, no matter where you lean, on your personality, on your political spectrum, that's one that everybody has a trouble with. For the Israelites must live many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred fertility pillar, without ephod or idols. And afterward, the Israelites will turn and seek Yahweh, their God, and their Davidic king. Then they will submit to Yahweh in fear and receive his blessings in the future. Here's the beginning, a little teeny seed of the Davidic king being more than just the Davidic king. Because why would it be so important for God to say, in that day, they will seek me out and they will seek out their Davidic king? All throughout the Bible, God has made it very clear, all human leaders fail. And when you submit to the human leader as your primary gift or your primary solution to everything, you will fail. Yet now he's saying they will seek me and the Davidic king out. Now, this doesn't scream Jesus as God, but this does begin to hint. This seems to contradict the message that God has made about kings all throughout the Bible. Yet now he's encouraging to seek the Davidic king out, which gives you a little hint. Is there something more to this Davidic king than what we've been used to? Now, remember, this is the first transparency. So this doesn't scream or prove Jesus is God, but it begins to lay this transparency as of multiple down that Jesus will be God, the Messiah will be God. Does that make sense? Chapter 4. Hear the word of Yahweh, you Israelites, for Yahweh has a covenant lawsuit against the people of Israel. For there is neither faithfulness or loyalty in the land, nor do they acknowledge God. There is only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. They resort to violence and bloodshed. Therefore, the land will mourn, and all the inhabitants will perish. The wild animals, the birds in the sky, and even the fish in the sea will perish. What God is making clear is, we have a covenant with each other. And that covenant just didn't involve you being loyal to me. That covenant involved you being the image of God and ruling, subduing, and taking care of creation. And because you violate this covenant with me, it's affect your ability to take care of relationship of creation, and therefore all of creation is going to suffer with you. Just like you had a covenant with your spouse, but this wasn't just a covenant with your spouse, your covenant with your spouse also affects your children. And if you choose to violate that covenant and you choose to leave, it's going to affect your children, and they're going to reap the judgment and the consequences. In fact, psychologically, your children actually reap greater consequences than the divorce than the parents ever do. Because they're not adults making the decision who understand what's happening. They're the little children who don't get anything. And so this is what God is saying. You are supposed to rule over creation on my behalf. 
but because you rejected me, then you've ruined creation, and now creation's going to suffer with you when you go into exile. And that's on you. That's on you. Verse 4, Do not let anyone ac- accuse or contend against anyone else. For my case against you, priests, you stumble day and night, and false prophets stumble with you. You have destroyed your own people. You have destroyed my people by failing to acknowledge me. Because you refuse to acknowledge me, I will reject you as my priest. Because you reject the law of your God, you will reject your descendants. So you priests and prophets, I'm holding you to a higher standard because you were supposed to lead my people. And yet you're stumbling around in the dark and you're acting like you know what you're saying, but you have no idea what you're saying and you really know it. And now you're causing this sin, so this I have against you. Because you refuse to acknowledge me, I will reject you as my priest. Because you reject the law of your God, I will reject your descendants. The more the priests increased in numbers, the more they rebelled against me. They have turned their glorious calling into a shameful disgrace. They fed on the sin offering of my people. Their appetites longed for the iniquity. You took the great gift that God gave you of having an intimate relationship with God to pass it to the people. And, and you, you turned it into a money-making business. And, and you, you took the sacrifice that was supposed to atone for sins and you used it to fill your bellies. This is why you deserve to go into exile. Because this is what you do to the people. I will deal with the people and the priests together. I will punish them both for their ways and I will repay them for their deeds. They will eat but not be satisfied. They will engage in prostitution but not increase in numbers because they have abandoned Yahweh by pursuing their gods. You will produce sex. You will go into sex but it will give you nothing. There's no fruit from prostitution. That's what God is basically saying here. Old and new wine. Verse 11, take away the understanding of my people. They consult their wooden idols. Their diviner staff answers with an oracle. The wind of prostitution blows them astray. They commit spiritual adultery against their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills. They sacrifice on their oak and poplar and terabith because their shade is so pleasant. As a result, your daughters have become cult prostitutes and your daughter-in-laws commit adultery. I will punish your daughters when you commit prostitution, nor your daughters-in-laws when they commit adultery. For the men consort with harlots, and they sacrifice in the temple prostitutes. It is true that people lacks understanding will come to a ruin. You're so evil that your children are beginning to practice these things. And then you go to those people, and you worship your gods through that. You are so evil, you've committed sexual immorality so much, that your daughters think it's okay to become prostitutes. And not only that, then you go to those very daughters who are now temple prostitutes and you sleep with them to worship the gods. This is how jacked up you are. This is how jacked up you are. Although you, verse 15, O Israel, commit adultery, do not let Judah become guilty. Do not journey to Gilgah. Do not go up to Beth-Avon. Do not swear as surely as Yahweh lives. Israel, don't go anywhere in Judah because I don't want you to make Judah that way too. Don't influence them. They're not as bad as you and I don't want them to get worse. Israel is rebel like a stubborn heifer, a cow. Soon Yahweh will put them out to pasture like a lamb in the broad field. You act like cows are so stubborn you refuse to obey your master. So soon God will allow you to be slaughtered because if you don't obey, you're only good for meat. Exile. Ephraim has attached himself to idols. Do not go near him. They consume their alcohol. They engage in cultic prostitution. They 
They dearly love their shameful behavior. A whirlwind has wrapped them in its wings. Judgment. And they will be brought to shame because of their idolatrous worship. Now this is what God is saying. Yes, He's going to pursue them. Yes, He's going to forgive them of their adultery. adultery. And yes, He will woo them back into a covenant relationship. But that doesn't mean He's still not angry and will not punish them. Remember, there's this whole tension where God will pursue you and He will love you and He will redeem you and He will bring you back no matter how prostituted you've become. But at the same time, He is still an angry husband and He still will punish you and there are still consequences. Do not confuse it. Do not think that God will, has to be only the loving husband who's like, everything is still okay and I love you and I bring you back and there's no consequences. But don't think that he's the cruel, mean husband who's just beating you all the time because you've done this. There is anger. You have hurt him. He has every right to feel that anger. You violate the law on him and other people. He has every right to punish you for that. But he also loves you. And he'll redeem you and he'll restore you and he'll clean you up and place you back. And both will happen, just like it would with any human. Every spouse would be angry and hurt. And there will be consequences for that. But there are some spouses who are also willing to forgive and restore. And that's what God is painting here. Do not just look at one side or the other. Chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this, you priests. Pay attention, you Israelites. Listen closely, O king. For judgment is about to overtake you. For you were like a trap to Mizpah and a net spread over a catch to Tabor. Those who revolt are knee-deep in slaughter. But I will discipline them all. I know Ephraim all too well. The evil of Israel is not hidden from me. For you are enraged, engaged in prostitution, O Ephraim. Israel has defiled itself. Their wicked deeds do not allow them to return to their God because the spirit of idolatry controls their heart and they do not acknowledge Yahweh. Now, that's important because it's something we don't talk a lot about as Christians. We really communicate God's desire to seek and pursue and call all people back to him in repentance. And we really pursue and communicate and emphasize the idea that anybody can repent at any time, no matter what. And that is all true. But what we don't talk about very often is some people have so killed the image of God in them and destroyed it and twisted it and they're so enraptured in evil, they don't want to come back. And, and, and it's not my job to determine that. I need to preach and teach and love and, 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 and go to all people because I don't know where they are. I mean, who would ever think that people like the Nazis who torture people in the concentration camps could turn to God, and they did? Or who would ever think that Jeffrey Dahmer could come to God, and he did? Yet at the same time, we do need to acknowledge the fact that when God is speaking to Israel, he makes it very clear, you don't want to come back. You never will come back. And that ups the ante a little bit more on his justice. Because then all we do is have people who do not want to be redeemed just destroying more people with no hope of them ever changing. I mean, the argument of me not taking matters into my own hands when I'm getting justice on people is I have no idea what God is going to do with their life one day. But the argue, that, that argument doesn't apply to Yahweh, because he knows their heart, and he knows whether they'll repent or not. And so it doesn't do the world good when they just destroy, destroy, destroy. 
The arrogance of Israel testifies against it, and Israel and Ephraim will be overthrown because of their iniquity. Even Judah will be brought down with them. Now, right now, Judah is better than Israel. Eventually, Judah will become so bad they'll be worse than Israel. Verse 6, although they bring their flocks and herds to seek the favor of Yahweh, they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. They have committed treason against Yahweh because they bore illegitimate children, and soon the new moon festivals will devour them in their, their fields. God is saying, though, though they bring sacrifices to me, they will not find me because I have withdrawn. I'm not answering their prayers anymore. Now, don't take that the wrong way, because he has clearly been saying, if they repent, I will, I will hear them. But they're not repenting. Okay, remember, they're just bringing animal sacrifices after they've worshipped the gods. So they're worshipping the gods, they're oppressing the poor, they're involved in sexual immorality, and then they come and they sacrifice to Yahweh, and they're like, hey, Yahweh, talk to us. You're just another God with all the other ones. And then since God's like, you're not, I'm not talking to you. Okay, I've withdrawn, not with that behavior. But God has also made clear, if you repent and truly seek me out and throw off your idols, then I'm here. And I will hear you and I will draw you back. Because if I didn't want you to come back to me, I wouldn't waste my time with all these repetitious prophets. <laughs> Blow the ram's horn in Gibeah. Sound the trumpet at Ramah. Sound the alarm in Beth-Avon. Tremble in fear, O Benjamin. Ephraim will be ruined in the day of judgment. What I am declaring to the tribes of Israel will certainly take place. The princes of Judah, also known as the kings, are like those who move boundary markers. I will pour out my rage on them like a torrential flood. Ephraim will be oppressed, crushed under the judgment, because he was determined to pursue worthless idols. So Ephraim is another name for Israel. But once again, you get in verse 10, the social injustice. They're actually moving boundary markers of where their land ends and begins just so they can cheat people and make more money. And verse 11 is their idolatry. And they're determined to go after other idols. Verse 12, I will be like a moth to Ephraim, like a wood rot to the house of Judah. Now, in the ancient world, moths, <laughs> and we didn't, they, they didn't pump all their clothes and furniture full of chemicals to keep all insects from eating things. And moths could really destroy your clothing really quickly in the ancient world. And that's what God is saying. When Ephraim saw this sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim turned to Assyria and begged its great king for help but he will not be able to heal you. He cannot cure your wound. So when you saw you were in trouble and people were attacking you and taking advantage of you, like you took advantage of other people, instead of coming to me and seeking me for help, you went to Assyria and tried to make treaties with them, begging them to help. When I am far greater than them and I love you far more than they do, and that's another example. Not only have you committed adultery with your gods, but you've committed adultery with treaties with other nations, seeking them instead. Verse 14, I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion in the house of Judah. I myself will tear them to pieces. Then I will carry them off and no one will be able to rescue them. Then I will return again to your lair and they will have suffered their punishment. Then they will seek me and their distress. They will earnestly seek me. Now there's the ultimate purpose. This isn't a capricious, vindictive God who just wants vengeance on his people for what they've done. He's not a jealous lover who's just keying your car and burning down your whatever to get back at you. This is a God who's punishing them because he hates sin 
and he cannot tolerate what they're doing to the poor and the widows and the foreigners and the oppressed and the needy. But he is also doing it because the whole point is to bring them to repentance. That when they've lost everything, and the people that they're trusting in, the Assyrians, are doing this to them, and the gods that they've trusted in are not protecting them, and they're stripped of everything, then he says, then they will come back to me. They will come back to me. That's the ultimate goal. So he's not talking about the tribe of Ephraim. He's talking about all of the nation of Israel. Correct. Because remember way back in Genesis when Jacob blessed his 12 sons, Ephraim and Manasseh were the sons of Joseph. And so he gave Judah the headship title, and then he elevated Ephraim up and gave him a headship title. And then he gave Joseph a double land inheritance, and he gave Manasseh, the other son of Joseph, a double land inheritance. So he created two heads. Judah got the headship, obviously, when David and Solomon became king. But when the kingdom split after Solomon, the first king of the north was Jeroboam, and he was an Ephraimite. From that point on, Ephraim finally got its headship, even though Jeroboam walked away from God and after his son, they all got wiped out. But that idea of headship carried on and that name stuck with Israel for several years after that. Well, not several, many, 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 many years after that. But here's where we come to it. And this shows you what God is doing. Chapter 6, verse 1. Come on, let us return to Yahweh. This is Hosea. Let us come back. Okay, if, if we repent right now and go back now, we don't have to be ripped apart by lions. That is not God's ultimate goal. Now, that's metaphorical, obviously, but the Assyrians aren't going to be much better than a lion. Actually, I think I might rather take a lion over the Assyrians. So. This doesn't have to happen to us. He himself has torn us to pieces. So now he's looking in the future, looking back after the judgment has been dealt out. He himself has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bandage our wounds. He will restore us in every in a very short time. He will heal us in a little while so that we may live in his presence. So let us acknowledge him. Let us seek to acknowledge Yahweh. He will come to our rescue as certainly as the appearance of the dawn. So even though he punishes us, he is the one who's going to heal us, restore us. So even though he's the one who spanked us and put us in timeout and all that kind of stuff, he's also the one that has the firm talk with us afterwards and loves us and hugs us and says, I never wanted this for you. As certainly as the winter rain comes, as certainly as the spring rain that waters the land, you can be sure that he will restore you as sure as you can that the rains will come. And right now we're in a dry spell, which is very common in the ancient world, and that is judgment. But we all know, no matter how long that dry spell lasts, the rains always come. And no matter how long this judgment discipline may last, the forgiveness, the restoration, the healing of Yahweh always comes.